Hi, I'm Sarah Baker. Welcome to Mama Stories. I created Mama Stories after seeing how impactful sharing stories can be in overcoming the challenges of motherhood. I am where I am today because of the stories of so many amazing strong mamas. And I want to share that with anyone I can. So follow along to laugh, cry, and be empowered. All right, welcome to the podcast today, Julie Metzger. Thank you so much for being here with us, Julie. Oh, it's a privilege. Uh, I feel honored because my sister actually attended your class, and then I wrote you down on like my wish list. I was like, this is the person I want to interview. And then here we are sitting here today. I love it. And I feel like the listeners are in for a good treat. (laughs) Puberty always rises to the top. Yes, it does. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, obviously puberty is what you've mentioned, but like your journey into where you are today. Sure. Well, let's just start with what it looks like today. Okay. Um, I have a company called Great Conversations. We provide programs for 10 to 12-year-olds and a grown-up to talk about puberty, growing up, decision-making, sexual reproduction, sexuality. And this is the 31st year of doing that work. Wow. Um, Every year... We have, uh, this past year, we probably had over 18,000 people go through our classes just in this last year. So we get a chance to do a lot of talking about puberty. Um, We do that work in the Pacific Northwest and in Bend, Oregon. So we go up as north as Bellingham and Everett, Seattle, Bellevue, Bainbridge Island, Federal Way, uh, Tacoma. We also are in Bend, Oregon, and then all throughout the Uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We're sponsored primarily by Children's Hospital, Seattle Children's Hospital up here, and Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford University in the Bay Area. But we are also sponsored in some of these smaller communities um, by pediatrician groups in Bellingham Peace Health, Virginia Mason Winslow Clinic on Bainbridge, Central Oregon Pediatrics in Bend, Oregon. So we have this opportunity to partner with other healthcare providers in those areas to, um, you know, connect with the community through their work as well. In 31 years, um, we've had a, we do have kind of uh, divided our programs by talking to girls, 10 to 12, and a grown up, and boys, 10 to 12, and a grown up, and we keep that gender. S- split only because at some point you kind of um this particular age group kind of developmentally they feel more relaxed and safe in those spaces and Mm -hmm. they also have programs co-ed at school so this just offers a different kind of piece of the pie to have a conversation that focuses in on what your family could be talking about yeah um but there's a gender mix on what grown-up shows up in the room. There could be moms at the boys' class, dads in the girls' class, or either um, or all identities and all genders can show up so that we have an opportunity to kind of set a tone and give people an idea of how to have these conversations so that when they leave, our goal is that they feel more empowered and more relaxed and And honestly, that they walk out saying, that was more fun than I thought it was going to be. And Mm -hmm. let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. Okay. So you obviously started your career as a nurse. Mm -hmm. And then I think I read you, 
you actually handled more of like the adolescent mm-hmm. my, um, patients. My, uh, Career started off right away on an adolescent unit, and I'd spent time even as an undergrad working in adolescent clinics, so I've kind of always had a thing for teenagers Mm -hmm. and preteens and enjoy very much that space. Did you go into nursing wanting to do that, or did you just kind of get handed into this program and then fell in love with it? I think I pursued it from the beginning. I think I walked into nursing school not necessarily knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but this particular population always has grabbed my attention. And even before that, uh, at my church growing up, I was a counselor of the middle school kids in high school. Mm-hmm. And I just, I've always gravitated towards this age group. And so when I got to nursing school, any chance there was as an undergrad to spend time in that space, I would. Yeah. Um, and landed up graduating in, um, in undergrad with have a specialty focus it was in pediatrics and then when I started here at Seattle Children's Hospital I was on an adolescent unit Um, and then from there I went on to graduate school and I again pursued a thesis topic and a and a advisor that I could focus on that age group and Mm -hmm. that work asked the question around to as a part of a woman's health study what kind of education did you receive um, when you around puberty and starting your periods and um, what made a difference and when we were looking at the data almost everybody said well I learned what I knew about periods and puberty from my mother and so I thought that's so fun and funny Mm -hmm. to imagine those conversations and how different they all were, some lasting one second, some lasting Mm -hmm. 10 hours, some that were so uncomfortable, some that were actually with incorrect material or myth. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you actually sat with your grown-up, and what if an expert taught you about those things, and then you had this shared experience, and what if that experience was fun, and what if it was funny, what if yeah. you actually laughed out loud? And I remember exactly where I was sitting in the University of Washington study carol in the library. I remember exactly thinking, I could do that. I know how to do that. That is, that I know what to do. And so, so cool. probably a year later, I don't even know, two years later, I was in Pittsburgh working at a hospital as a nurse manager. And of a pediatric unit, and I was having lunch with the woman who ran community education, and I told her that idea. And she goes, well, let's do it. How long would it take you to write that up? And I go, I don't remember what I told her. A couple weeks. I don't even know. Wow. Um, And I, it probably was longer, four weeks, because she had to advertise, and um, I remember we advertised to three schools that were in the neighborhood of the hospital, and that very first class was already so booked, we had to book two classes to fit everybody in. And it's wow. literally been that way ever since. If we post a class, you know. Do you think that's driven because parents don't, not that they don't want to have the conversation, they don't feel like they're, like, could have that conversation? Or do you think it's driven because... They don't want to have the conversation or what, I think what do you all think of that? I, I think there's a range. I think one of the things that's interesting is it 
So there's many different, if you've been in the community for 31 years, Mm -hmm. there are people that come to our class that may have four daughters. If it was only because they didn't know what to say, Mm. they'd only have to come once. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they would come the first time, they'd learn what to say, and then they'd be able to say it for the next three Mm. daughters. But that isn't what happens. I think that part of it is the experience. It's almost like a date night with your son or daughter and this opportunity to kind of share in this experience. Not because there's lots of families that show up and say they're quite comfortable talking about these topics. It just adds on or creates an opportunity for more conversation. And um, so I think there's all sorts of comfort levels in the room. I, at any point in time, make we all, all of us that teach this program with me, um, all of us assume that in any room, someone is saying to themselves, some grown-up is saying, I really hope he doesn't say the word sex out loud. (laughs) And someone's saying, if she doesn't mention my particular unique experience with sex or sexuality, I will feel offended. Mm. So I think um, the whole goal is to make room so that everybody feels safe yeah, and that everybody feels as if they, their experience can be honored um, so that there's room for everybody in mm-hmm. the room, as long as it's medically accurate. I sure. think our job is to create medically accurate information. So yeah. if somebody disagrees with what we consider medically accurate information, I guess they might walk out feeling less satisfied. Um, sure. But for the most part, I think people are grateful for the opportunity to cover the material together in a way that feels like um, they can rest in the space mm-hmm. and have yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, that's exactly what happened with my sister and my niece. My sister and niece are extremely close. She's a single mom, so they basically are best friends. <laughs> so I feel like they could have any conversation, and my sister's very forthcoming with information and reads lots of books and keeps herself armed with information for her. Uh, but when they left your class, I remember my niece giving an example where you said, even Michelle Obama had her period. And was, you know, giving a speech or whatever it was. And I thought, gosh, that is something, if you don't have it yet, if you haven't experienced, period, it can be all-consuming. You know, what happens? Where do I go? What, how do I do this? What, do, what if it happens here? You know, and then when you normalize it like that, I mean, that was her favorite part where yeah. she was like, you know what? Even swimmers have right. their periods. Right, Even, right, right. I think a couple things you bring to mind, which is, so our whole goal is that it feels as if you're sitting there as a family and connecting. But there's something powerful about doing this in community. Mm. So that learning in community, you're like, oh, it's, you can't separate, it, it isn't just, this is only happening to me. It's happening to everybody in this room. Everybody in this room is impacted by it no matter what body parts you have, right? That everybody in this room is impacted by puberty and periods and all of these things. So 
it's a learning in community as well as the community of my family. My mm-hmm. family sitting within that community and seeing yourself not only as an individual that has to problem solve a single day or a single moment, but that you actually have part of a human being experience. And so by sitting in community, that's hard to do when you're having this conversation in the car. Yeah. It's valuable to have it in the car. Sure. But that idea that it's so universal can happen if you're sitting in a room. In any room at Children's, we probably have 150 people in the room. Mm -hmm. So you are... Kind of collective, class. yeah, collectively in community. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. I didn't think about it like that. Like when you, it becomes less like this is happening to me, and more this is a natural transition to get to the next step. I think it's both all the time, mm. right? It's not kind of one into the next, and then that's where you stay. I think it goes toggles back and forth between those two things. Yeah, the entire class, and then your entire life. Sure. Where you're like, what will I do if that happens to me? And then, look, I'm amongst all of these people who are also excited or nervous or unsure or all of those things. Yeah. So also with your class that I love is you not only talk about, like in the girls' class, you talk about them going through puberty and the boys' class talk about them going through puberty, but then you also share... Right. what the opposite genders experience is. Right. So or all genders. We All say, genders. Right. Yes. So, um, yes. So the very, it's a two-part class. And the first part is all about people with the body parts that are mostly in the room. Mm-hmm. So if we're at a girls' class, it's with people with body parts with a uterus and a vagina for the most part. Although, again, lots of people have different body parts or see themselves as girl with different body parts. But our job is to, on that first class, is to talk about the body parts that experience a period and a uterus and a vagina. And so that's sort of the focus of the girls' class on the first class. And the second part of the class is to talk about people with penises and then what sexual reproduction is and how babies are born and what decision-making looks like. And in the boys' class, it's the reverse. It's the body parts of people with a penis and what that is like and how the hormones of boys' puberty and those body parts looks different. And then the second class, the reverse. What's the mindset behind that of like kind of opening the curtain of like the opposite gender? Oh, why even go there? Like why, yeah, what is the mindset behind like educating a girl on what a a boy goes through in puberty? (laughs) Well, it's, Almost impossible to talk about a baby if you haven't understood what a penis and sperm is. So to be able to, or or the very first question girls want to know is why do we even have a period? So to Mm. me, to link the idea of having a period, not just as an event, but as linked to fertility is kind of interesting. Yeah. And so to be able to talk about fertility, you got to bring in other body parts. And uh, and, and if you're going to talk about, sexuality, then you're going to have to also open that up to a wider range of what sexuality can look like and, and attraction. So once you start in on the topic, it kind of opens itself up rather nicely Mm -hmm. and limiting it to just the idea of a period seems really, um, all the girls would be sitting there going, well, why, 
Sure. Why would I even need that to happen? Yeah. Linking it all together gives you an idea of the full expression of our bodies and their purpose um, or one of their purposes. I think too, it, this doesn't just happen to humans, right? And so even they're familiar with their dog having a litter of puppies or, you know, Mm -hmm. stories and movies and things where animals are a part of this equation as well. So it's very easy to open that up in a safe place so that it's not just about the biology of a period. Yeah. That's, that's, that only takes about two seconds. Sure. Well, and I think the other side of that too is like when we as like parents, I would say, I don't have a teenager, so I don't know what this is like yet, but as an aunt watching people go through this time in their life, in my experience, the parents might say something like, yeah, you have a baby through sex, like a, a man and a woman, they have sex and there's a baby and that's it. Where in your class, what I've heard is the experience is that there's actually like, this is how sex has happened. Like a penis goes into a vagina and that right there is actually mind opening for a young girl because I don't know if that's actually talked about. Like, I don't know, maybe it is, but in my experience, when you say the word sex, it's just kind of implied. Like sex is just something that happens where in your class, when you actually describe what happens in sex, I think it arms women and men with like, oh, that, like this word now actually has more of like what it looks like in real life to me versus like this word don't talk about, don't say. 100%. You make babies. We know from research. So let me just always say that Sex isn't just between a man and a woman. So mm. we always have to um, acknowledge all humans in the room and their sexual expression, which might be different than that. So I just want to lay that out there. But the idea that your body feels pleasure, that it desires to be close to people, that there's touch that might be a hug, there's touch that might be a gram, um, a a kiss, and we're doing that work now as a 10-year-old mm-hmm. in our world with our grandparents and our parents sure. and our family and our neighbors. And so that you you build and try to understand how your body shows and shares um, closeness. And you make mm-hmm. decisions all the time between hugging a grandparent and hugging the QFC bag uh, groceries clerk. So this idea that we're using and communicating with our bodies pleasure and connection now as a 10-year-old, this idea that as we get older, our bodies um, and our relationships begin to ask the question of a a different kind of connection through sexuality. Um, It's just part of building the story so that it doesn't come out of nowhere and it's Mm -hmm. built sort of like, I sometimes describe it like building a house. You're going to lay this foundation and then build this next idea. Mm -hmm. Some of it has to do with body parts. Some of it has to do with body function. Then everybody, all human functions, there's different body parts and different hormones. Then you're building in how you use that in everyday ordinary life sitting in a classroom then you start to talk about people who have crushes and attractions yeah you know it's just sort of a building of a story so that people generally in fifth grade are sitting there going like oh 
I get it. Mm. Um, because they're around seeing and feeling some of those same things, feeling a, yeah. a crush, um, or an attraction to someone that is super familiar that's sitting in a desk next to you, um, or a celebrity that you will never meet, and then trying to understand and know what to do with some of those ideas, some of which you act on and some of which you don't, mm-hmm. acknowledging even what's happening now in my fifth grade self. Yeah. Um, and then making it possible to just look out ahead what what kind of relationships will I have and how will I know how to communicate within those relationships and what my job is to um, be connected to my feelings um, and to understand them and to be honored and to have my feelings and desires be recognized and heard by others. So... That's a lot to talk about yeah. in four hours, yet there are layers of all those conversations mm-hmm. that we're trying to kind of again weave a tapestry so that someone walks out with this shawl and they go, hey, let's let's keep on, let's wrap ourselves up in this and keep on talking. Yeah. And you have a book, right? Yes. Okay. And that, I know my niece has that book. And we have two books, actually. It. We have, well, Puberty Lasts My Whole Life. That's the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has questions that we've been asked for 30 years. And the book very much mirrors the class so okay. that um, kind of the way the curriculum rolls out in a class is the way it sort of rolls out in the book generally. Okay. Um, so this is like a resource for them to yeah. keep going back to after the class. Right. Okay. And um, the other part is uh, as in our classes, uh, we have anonymous questions written on a card. Mm-hmm. And these are, the book is a reflection of those anonymous questions. When we're giving the class we have the, the curriculum sort of drives what we know the questions will be, mm-hmm. right? Because you, um, you've given a certain amount of information and then you know what kind of questions will come your way. So what's fun about the questions, it's in the words and the thoughts of the, mostly the kids. Uh, yeah. And so it's us modeling through the answering of those questions to kind of the developmental space of this group. Mm. I think... I think where parents feel less sure is what's developmentally appropriate for this age group, um, especially when you open up a newspaper or a magazine. You say, "Oh, look, um, the sexually transmitted infection rate is going up in the city of Seattle." You're thinking, "Like, oh, I've got to tell that information to my mm. four-year-old, right?" There's yeah. developmental sort of building blocks. Okay. And um, I think, if anything, our book nails that 10 to 12-year-old tone and amount of information. Um, our group, as a as a large group of instructors, both in the Bay Area and up here, we spend a lot of time continually talking about that because it's easy to let the culture um, push you out. Um Someone will say, I wish you had talked more about birth control. And I'm like, honestly, this 10 to 12-year-old group, saying that birth control exists and that they'll 
need to research that and look at that and it it's part of the decision making around having sex with someone um is enough for this level of class Mm -hmm. for that seventh and eighth grader you could imagine talking well what what would that really mean and where would you go and how would you get that information and what would some of the thinking be you know there's sort of a layered on developmental space that comes next yeah where that's interesting that you would say somebody would want you to talk about that. Mm-hmm. It's, if, if I thought your comment was going to be they would want you to reel it back a little bit rather Sometimes than... Sometimes that happens too. We have just probably equal number of people in the room that says, I was offended you talked about birth control um, to someone who says, I wish you had talked about it more. Interesting. This is such an interesting topic for me because yeah. I feel like we all go through it. Like everybody, every parent... Yeah has gone through it. And yet I feel like we weren't educated well on it. I can tell you for sure I wasn't. And then we're also like, maybe it's uncomfortable to talk about. So it's uncomfortable because it brings up conversations about sex, about how certain people have sex. It brings up conversations about birth control and period. Like all these things, I think parents are just like, ooh, yucky. Well, I think part of it is it's, not a lot of parents I think don't think of their kids as sexual beings Mm. um and even just sitting there thinking like my child will feel sexual and is sexual is sort of that oh my gosh your brain just starts running out ahead Mm -hmm. on that versus just sort of meeting them where they are in that yeah. Um, and I think, I think that kind of help, that kind of keeps people from uh, that they want to run out ahead, and they feel afraid. I think yeah. there's there are a lot of scary things about sex. Sure. People get pregnant. People get diseases. People get hurt. People get assaulted. People, um, you know, there's a million things to fear. Mm-hmm. But fear is not a great teacher. In fact, Mm -hmm. what is a great teacher that keeps people safer is when they have medically accurate information and they know more about their bodies. It's better to be informed to give voice um, so that people feel empowered when they know more clearly that they're in a situation that is not safe or um, not healthy for them. It's very hard to know what is unhealthy and unsafe if you don't know what is expected and good and healthy and real. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, we could probably talk for hours on the fact that we as a culture, like sex is a very dirty thing. Like those things you mentioned about what sex brings, I feel like is often what's brought up about sex instantly. Like you could get pregnant. Don't do it till you're married. Um, it's, you know, people could assault you people. There's like consent, not consent. So it just becomes like almost more of like this really scary thing. And can I say everything you listed right there is mostly scary messaging for a girl. Mm, yes. Very and true. so that even that, that idea that we give a certain scary message around sex to girls, underline, underline, Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that we don't give scary messages to boys, but everything you just listed right there yeah. um, is all about girls 
the unequal weighting of sexual information by gender. And of course, one of the other things that's kind of um, pervasive in that is that somehow boys are more sexual than girls and that it's girls' job to hold back the sexuality of boys. And that mm. is also very not helpful and not true. Yeah. Um, so I think this idea that girls understand that they're sexual people, that they not only deserve, want, and need pleasure as well, and that they will be a part, equal partners in a relationship with an equal voice of two yeses, describing to people what it can look like and should look like makes people safer. Yeah. People get nervous that if you describe that, somehow people... It invites people to have sex. It actually, we, we know that is not true. Yeah. Um, we know that research is super clear that people who have the information actually delay their entry into sex. Oh, really? Interesting. I would agree. I mean, I think that for me, when I decided to make a decision to have sex for the first time, that was a decision that I made and was too afraid to talk about because I was told that if I wanted it, right. I, that wasn't right for me. Right. Like I, I was then all these other labels right. rather than a, probably too young, but a young adult consenting to this act. And it became, instead of this like celebratory, like this is what I'm doing for me, it's now this hidden, dirty thing. And as I've grown up and watched people that I love that are younger go through this transition, I try to be very careful not to paint that for them because it's just a natural thing that's going to happen. And, and again, mostly girls get that yes, messaging. For sure. And, and in the, again, not all boys, but in the boy world, it's more celebrated or backslapped, high-fived experience. Yeah. For sure. It's hard because I have a boy. And so when I found out I wanted a boy and people always were like, why do you want a boy? Like, it's so weird. You're a girly girl. Like you should want a girl. And honestly, the reason why I was so terrified to have a girl and so thankful I was having a boy is because this type of stuff to me seemed easier for my male counterparts in school and at work than it did for me and my girlfriends. And it starts from like day one. And it's really unfortunate. I wanted a boy for a lot of other reasons, but that's a primary one. Like I really wanted to feel like they weren't going to have to have this like constant identity struggle because it is hard when you are feeling certain things and when you want certain things and you're told that that's not supposed to be your role it can get a little consuming in your mind. For sure. I do think we have to be careful when we say it's easier. Mm. Um, because I think there's a lot of challenge in being a boy. Yeah. Um, and when we think about emotional selves, and um, there's a lot more room for girls to express their emotions, sure. to... Um, hear each other, they're more tuned in to acknowledging their emotional selves. Mm -hmm. And our culture um, continues to struggle with allowing the same 
room for boys. Yeah. And once boys are not allowed to express themselves or invited to express themselves, there's a lot of challenge and negativity to their relationships and their ability to be authentic. Sure. And I think sometimes when we call it easy, it means that we don't hear from them. Mm. Uh, when we really need to. Yeah. And they, they're, so I get the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. Like that's real. The world is unevenly weighted so that by walking in the room, there are more yeses in the instance of being male, mm. white male mm-hmm. in particular. Um, but I think that one of the things that we have to be careful of is that the silent boy or the It is not not struggling. Yeah. And I think in the boy world, what is so challenging is that there's a one-upmanship mm. about themselves. So the world is advantaged to the boy who can be on top. So in the boy world, in our culture, the boy is good at sports, the bigger boy, the boy who... Um, is able to manage themselves physically or is recognized for their development, um, that boy is at an advantage. But one of the very hardest places to be is the latest developing boy. And if you're the smallest person, the nerdiest person, the, um, the person who's not connected emotionally, you, you may struggle very deeply. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about boys' puberty and girls' puberty is that boys' puberty takes you toward what we recognize and idealize and what makes a man. You get bigger. Mm-hmm. So boys get recognized and admired for their growth. In girls' puberty, it takes you away from what we idealize in a woman. You get bigger. And... The smaller girl, the more girly girl, the um, not the rounder girl, the fully hipped girl, especially in white culture, um, is less desirable. Yeah. So I think those are all interesting things to think about when we think about parenting our own child because there's not a lot kids can do. It's about their size and shape, it's mostly determined by birth parents, right? So um, whatever birth parents a child has sort of determines how tall they're going to be, what their shape is going to be, how fast or slow they're going to go through puberty. Um, That is genetic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, my sister, who I know she would not mind that I say this, but she started later in her life for puberty, like very late, like 17. And my older sister and I, so she's in the middle, we both started really young. So almost everybody starts puberty. So let's talk about pu- the difference between periods okay. and yes. puberty. period. Almost all puberty for girls starts in elementary school. Okay. The average age of starting your period in the United States is 12 and a half with a wide range of normal between 9 and 15. Okay. So it's possible that your sister started above 
15, but she would be in the small percent of people who start that late. They're periods, but she started yeah. puberty probably in middle school, okay, late grade school. Um, but there are people who have periods, you know, at nine or at eight. Again, if you're eight, you're wow. at the, you're equally at the less percentile of people who start their periods that early. But nine to 12, nine to 15 is the wide range of normal. 12 and a half is the average. And it's a height weight ratio. So the people who tend to be the last to start their periods might be the tallest but leanest girls or the tiniest, smallest girls. Okay. And the people who start their periods first tend to be the people who are becoming more fully figured yeah. um, earlier. That's interesting. That is us for yeah. sure. She's definitely a lot, a lot smaller. Yeah. Interesting. Eight years old starting your period. I mean. Yeah. Again, like, you said 17. To me, it's as out there as saying nine. Yes. Yeah. I just think like in my mind, I look at like my eight-year-old nephew. Well, I'm not talking about boys. For sure. But okay. I just think like his equivalent so, like his friend, I mean, I just can't imagine handling that. Like it was so traumatic when I started. So there's, puberty tends to not, you don't just jump to a period, right? So breast development happens for, in a yes. girl. Let's focus on a girl. Yeah. Breast development, people get um, underarm hair, pubic hair. Um, and some sort of body odor in that space. And then they start their periods. It, again, it. The average age is 12 and a half, and it mm -hmm. has been 12 and a half for a good 150 years. Okay. Um, but before that, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, people were older that started their period. Again, because of that height-weight ratio and nutrition for sure, so that if your great-great-grandmother crossed the Oregon Trail, right, she was a smaller person. She was eating berries. She was hauling around a huge skirt and some oxen. So she was a smaller human being. Our girls today um, are just a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. So their periods, for that alone, better nourished, bigger people, their periods start earlier. There are also some environmental impact that we are still trying to understand that has pushed puberty younger as a, as a cross uh, the culture. So I would call somebody who starts their period eight that we would call that precocious puberty. Someone who is, has a diagnosis of precocious puberty means that they're starting significantly younger. That is not a typical experience. Okay. Um, so I don't even know that we need to spend time yeah, talking yeah. about that mm -hmm. group of people. Um, they have their own unique thing. They might've had a pubic hair in, well, about 10% of the population has pubic hair early, like in first or second grade, instead of later in their experience. Okay. Um, closer to the time that you start your period. So it's true also that boys' puberty has also gotten uh, gone younger uh, over the last 200 years, um, and some of that may also be environmentally connected. I'm not an expert on that. And sure. there's a lot of research going on right now to understand that better. Exposure to plastic, exposure to toxins in oh, the environment. interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, I'll have to look up some of that stuff. I do want to go back to one thing I said earlier when you were talking about 
you know, being careful not to say it's easy yeah. for a particular gender. Yeah. Um, I do think that is really important. So thank you for pointing that out. There is actually a documentary that I have been dying to watch called The Mask We Wear. Oh, yeah. The Mask You Wear. I get it wrong every time. Yeah. Um, it was on Netflix and now it's gone. I can't find it. Anyways, mm. but it talks a lot about that where yeah. um, men are actually, bo boys are actually born potentially more emotional than girls. And then we, they kind of just are taught to stuff it. Right. Uh, and so now we're talking about something like this, where it's this big um, transformative time for you as a human. I do remember feeling comfortable when I got my period, which is the big thing for me. I understand there's like things that line up for that, but that like terrifying, I'm at a lake with my friends and now I have my period. And obviously you can't wear a pad in the lake and there's all these like I'm using a tampon for the first time, but I remember a girlfriend being there with me and being very comfortable being like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then there's this like other side where I start to wonder as a boy, when something equivalent happens, do they feel comfortable? Do they feel safe to have that outlet? And if not, what's the impact on that? Like, so I think you're right. I, it's important not to say it's easier because it's just different. And there is this beautiful thing that as women, we're encouraged to, ha we are the people that have emotions. And sometimes we're told we have too many or, you know, we bring them into the workforce or whatever it is. But there is this benefit at this stage. Oh, and at all stages. Sure. And I think that a lot of the messaging around emotions can happen as early as a baby or a one-year-old. Mm. That some of that our response to a crybaby four-year-old boy is different than a girl who's crying. So I think that that doesn't just happen at puberty. And you can't just redial your communications all of a sudden just because someone's a preteen. In fact, those are really, we communicate. This is what John and Julie Gottman are all about, this idea of emotion coaching from the earliest stages, the idea that that emotions are not a negative. They're an opportunity to connect. Mm. And so when we see our, our child and the way their brains are developed, we'll always default to an emotional place first because their prefrontal cortex, the computer of their brain, is the at the very front of our forehead. That's the very last thing to develop. And that is fully developed when you're in your mid-20s. So that amygdala, that limbic system in the center of our brain, that's what lights up to manage things. And our kids will always default to that managerial emotional space first and foremost. And so how we respond to that, if we're not comfortable with our kids angry or sad, um, we communicate that in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, if we are uncomfortable, we could dismiss it. We could say, you're fine, you've got a roof over your head, it will go away tomorrow. We talk as if it's not real. Or we say, here's a cookie, put a smile on it, you know, you'll be fine. And we can also say, um, here are 10 ideas on how you could have done that better. You should have listened to me in the first place. And we crush it down. So I think those are two kind of super popular ways mm -hmm. to manage emotions when really instead it's kind of interesting to be able to go um, to allow an expression uh, of emotion and then help our kids learn to manage their bodies to be able to 
calm their bodies down from a highly emotional state before they make a decision and begin to acknowledge and recognize their emotional state instead of and being tuned into it. Mm-hmm. So that kids, by the time they're in school, you're, they'll, they can anticipate my heart rate's going up. I feel angry and hot, and I know to calm down, I need to step away. Um, being tuned into who you are and allowing those emotions to be real and then learning how to calm your body to be able to communicate through words, that that's the work of childhood and adolescence. And I would say in that too, when you, as a parent, are trying to, one, understand that, right? Like you're talking about the different parts of the brain when it develops, and then also understand how to help your kid. It's almost like reverse therapy for you too. For sure. And in fact, all parents, some of the best parenting happens when you have your own aha about your own triggers. Um, And I think nothing can bring up some of your own thing than your kids who are all of a sudden losing it and you're thinking, oh, this reminds me of how I felt when blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I think that's also true. I think that there are, this is why we have a lot of people come to our class. It's not just that we're talking about puberty and sex. It's that that time of being a preteen, it's sort of like your first super self-conscious time. And so you're sort of flooded with some of your own experiences during that time and so people come to kind of rediscover and understand that for their child as well it's just an interesting connecting point I can look out in the audience and watch these parents um, connecting with their own story as much as the person that they're there with yeah it's powerful that's really cool it's very cool I can see that because I know that when, like, I can take a minute to be like, okay, this is how I'm feeling about this, and I think back to, like, my experience with puberty or my experience with sex or whatever it is, it reminds me what that actual road is like versus when I'm in a conversation with somebody that's younger, might be going through this, might be having sex, whatever it is, it's really easy for me to put on this, like, well, don't do that. Like you shouldn't do that and don't do that and it'll happen or don't worry or, you know, any day now your period will start. And and it's like, it's super easy for us to step back because we're not in that space anymore. But what we have to remember is what we felt like in that time. Right. Like when I'm talking to my 17 year old sister, I want to give her advice all the time of like, this is not valuable. This is not worth your time. You have so much to look forward to. But in the end, I have to be like, but this is really real for her. Right. Or my niece who's, you know, already knee deep in puberty, I want to be like, don't worry, like someday you'll be like me and you'll be like, oops, my period started. I'm going to grab a pad, like whatever, you know? I think there's a balance between being, adding, filling out the story and creating hope and a vision, but not over advising Mm. or or over putting your story over squelching the other person's experience. Yes. Like you're saying... It's 100% for that person, right? Whatever they're experiencing, it's 100% for them. Yeah. Your experience sometimes with the only way you've been able to come to certain understandings or certain ease has come because of the work of yourself. That is true for 
your niece, your sister, et cetera, mm-hmm. that part of the work of learning who you are can only be done by you. Right. And then having some wonderful coaches and people to share the experience and be empathetic and thoughtful alongside you, that is, that's a wonderful, and that believe in you. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. But no, some of the best work, some of the best wiring in our brain comes from the mistakes we've made. Oh, agreed. So it's, you, it's hard to, sometimes parents want to protect their kids from making a mistake when actually their own wiring came from the mistake that was made that is actually helpful for them. Yeah. That's a hard thing to like oh, take huge. a step back though. Cause I do a talk called Staying Close While Standing Back because I think that is the jiu-jitsu of parenting. And what's that class for? Like, who's that for? Parents? Oh, parents. Or, okay. I, we also do, I do a bunch of parent talks also in the community. So, uh, and one is called that idea, staying close while standing back, because I think that is uh, quantum physics for parenting, where mm. you're kind of look like you're doing one thing, but you're really doing another. When part of the work is being uh, thoughtful, and engaged, but not running our kids' lives. Mm. Yeah, I um, I mentioned I listened to Dax Shepard's oh, podcast. Yeah. It's my favorite. And he um, obviously is like all my issues on the floor type of person and just wants to work through them. He loves self-work. And one of the things that he's said, and I am like I am sticking it in my brain because um, – I think it's easy as parents to do this, but he talks about, you know, he had a pretty rough upbringing, which brought him to who he is today, right? It's made him really street smart. It's made him really capable. Like, again, he's he's got the best wiring because of these mistakes or these things that have happened. And now he has two girls that are essentially very privileged and have parents that are really well-known and get to do these really fabulous things. And he's almost trying to now like show them what a bad life looks like because he wants to be like but you know just so you know there's less fortunate people and there's this and how you can't really paint that trauma for somebody you can't really right make your kid um care or understand about somebody who's sleeping on the street because you're like I used to you know you should be fortunate I used to do this and I used to do that and so I that's one thing is sticking with me for all aspects of what you know my son's going to go through is trying really hard not to be like, you know, well, well, my day, like Mm -hmm. it was really hard and we did this or. Well, of course I, I would say though that both you and Kristen Bell and Dak Shepard, (laughs) you guys will all be walking the talk with your kids means that you're either writing a check to a homeless shelter or you're serving there as a family, mm. that yeah. that it's not through the words that are happening by you saying, let me tell you about blah, blah, blah. It's as much that they get a chance, not only that they see you make lasagna for your neighbor or that you call your brother after an argument or that you heal it with your dad or that you are showing and sharing your love with your spouse or your partner so that people get a chance to see what love looks like. I think 
empathy shows up when they see it modeled and that kids learn through experiences and by your example, mm-hmm. not by your words alone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Man, well, all thing puberty and then all thing parenting. I'm glad <laughs> that you mentioned that you teach that class, though, because I do think that that um, will be a value to our listeners. So what I will do is I'm going to actually post on this podcast some of the links that we've talked about. So if somebody wants to go sign up for a Great Conversations class, they go to greatconversations.com. Yes, and there's a parent. So there's a couple things. You can come to the class, 10 to 12-year-old, <clears throat> and it was listed by cities, and you can your venue, your day, and we teach year-round. Okay. Um, some people don't actually don't realize that. So we're, we are teaching every month of every year. Okay. Um, somewhere in the area. Uh, second thing is there are right now three parent talks listed. One is Mothers of Sons. Um, so it's just for the parent, just the parent, mothers who have sons. And we just focus in on that unique relationship, Mothers of Sons. And then we have dads of daughters. It's just for dads. And we talk about parenting a daughter from a dad's perspective. Mm. And then we have staying close while standing back. And um, these are all like March, April, May, somewhere in there. Um, Those are all listed on the website as well. Uh, Greatconversations.com? Yes. And there's a parent link. Also, there's a list of resources where there are books and websites for preteens and uh, older teens. Okay. Okay. Is there a class or in the future for older kids? Like if, if a parent's listening to this and they're like, oh, my daughter's 13 or 14 and this would be beneficial to her, is there? We don't have any classes that we give to the public on that. We have often been invited to come to schools and do um, kind of focused, um, Classes, and we've done that a lot in the past. We do it a little bit less right now, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's just um, so, sort of built more on relationship with that school or that community group. Um, I'm going to do a group of middle schoolers and grown-ups in the San Francisco Bay Area from, that's mostly sponsored by a school, and I think that will be really fun, talking about how to have a good fight um, mm. with each other. Uh, what makes a healthy conflict? How do you navigate through conflict as a family of a middle schooler and a grown-up? So I think that will be really fun. So there are little; those aren't necessarily visible on the website. Those come from people asking and building a relationship, and then kind of okay. landing up in those spaces. Okay. So if somebody has a question like that, there's a place on the website they could at least yeah, contact con- you and exactly. get some more information. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be good. I think that that's cool that you're teaching that class. I'd like to almost see that class of like resolving conflict or good conflict in school. Cause again, I just think sometimes we're really distracted not learning in school because we're so distracted by what just happened <laughs> in between the two periods and what's yeah. in, and there's a value to that cause it's emotions and it's how you feel. But I can only imagine what that looks like today with all the social media presence, you know, it's like, in my day, we had phones. I'm not saying I'm that old, but like, but it didn't have, like, you could maybe text, and some people didn't even have text then. And so when I walked into the classroom, it almost was like I was safe from what just happened. For me, that was my experience. Like, it sure was in my mind, but I could learn less distracted 
learning, I guess. And now in my experience, I feel like, you know, you could have your smartphone out and be getting messages from all different types of social media platforms. There's certainly different family rules or different school rules around the visibility of a smartphone, especially for middle school. I Most of the middle schools I'm in don't allow a smartphone out unless you're using it for a class response or something like mm-hmm. that. But I do think this idea that even in the passing uh, between the two classes, looking up to see how many likes you have on some latest posting is definitely on your mind as you walk mm-hmm. in the room. And that I think there's a lot of teachers that are starting to use mindfulness techniques to help people recenter and focus mm. when they come into a classroom um, so that you can kind of clear your mind, not not clear your mind, but focus your mind yeah. uh, and your body. And um, that practice allows people to gain some really important skills. And there's some wonderful data around the ability to create um, a more focused and clear mind and, and calm body to be able to manage things just to enter into a math class, let alone walking back into the car with your siblings at the end of the day. Yeah. All useful. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine even today in your adulthood, right? Exactly. It's that's what even I'm saying. Even more you're useful. Build, you're yeah. building skills for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm glad to know teachers are doing that. Oh, yeah. In that's some awesome. schools, it's a, you know, there's pockets of people who practice that and get really good at that. I've spent some time in places where I kind of walked in as a doubter and then just kept seeing so much good come out of that. Um, because when you think about just like you're talking about, when you're walking in that hallway, there's all this emotion and drama and edginess to, and it's fast and you're switching subjects mm-hmm. and you're kind of, somebody looked at you oddly or whispered about something mm-hmm. and then all you're walking in and sitting down. It's wonderful to have this opportunity to just even spend one minute realigning. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That gives me hope because Grayson going into school makes me very anxious for a lot of reasons, but I'm glad to know that there are still teachers out there that are evolving themselves because a good teacher can go a really long way. Absolutely. I love teachers. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And anybody who's listening today, of course, you can go to greatconversations.com. There's a link at the bottom of this episode. So wherever you're enjoying your podcast, you can... Uh, access the link there to greatconversations.com. And of course, reach out if you have additional questions or if there's needs on the website. Um, Maybe your needs are beyond what the website has as of right now. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Now, if you're hooked, you can subscribe to this podcast, follow along on social media at The Mama Stories, or visit the website, mamastories.com. And mamas, I love you.